are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Now, I wonder what you thought about in terms of the theology in the book of Galatians. I know, I know some of you guys may think it's been a bit heady, a bit lofty. After all, it's about God's grace extended to us in the gospel, that we're not made righteous before God by our works, by the works of the law, but rather it's ever made righteous by the work of Jesus, right? By his life, his death, his resurrection. Uh, but now we ask the question, so what? We're, um, we, got, we got a couple verses left in this chapter. We only have a couple sermons left in this chapter. So, so what? What difference is all this that we've just learned? What does it make in our lives? Does it actually change anything in our lives? And that's what our text talks about today. Our text talks about how knowing and believing and resting upon the grace of God, while that is good, it is still not enough. Because God, he's calling us to practice that grace. To practice it. To put that grace into action. So your neighbor, let's practice grace. So here's our first point. Grace, it changes how we see ourselves. Okay? Now, we're all about self-image. When you scroll through your friends' Facebook pics, let's be honest. The first pics or the pictures that you linger on are the ones that, are, that have you in it. Right? You check yourself out. We're obsessed with ourselves. We spend a lot of money trying to reinvent ourselves, where we go to school, what jobs we take, what friends we have. All that is part of our self-image. You know, back then, back in the uh, was 90s, if not early 2000s, there was something called a camera. And it wasn't part of your phone, but that camera was used to take pictures of other things and other people, Right? But now, if I could define our current culture with two words, it would be selfie stick. That's what we do. It's just all about the selfie stick. You take a picture of yourself while you're in the bathroom, while you're in the living room. You don't have to leave your house. You don't have to see an amazing landscape. You don't have to be a part of some amazing activity or event. It's just you and the camera, and that's all you need, the selfie stick. And so we do it with the right angle, with the right lighting. We want to look flawless. Right? How many of you guys know which better, what your angle is? Yeah, right? Is, is it your left side or your right side? Come on, we're not all perfectly symmetrical like some others, right? So we won't be flawless, but here's the truth of God's grace. His grace will change how we see ourselves. Now, I want to give you a couple examples from this. First is grace reminds us that we're no better than anyone. Okay? Turn to your neighbor and say this, I'm not better than you. You know, I, I've, I've learned to re, rephrase that. Before I said, turn to your neighbor and say, you're not better than me. And, and it created quite, quite a lot of division within our ministry. So it's now about, I'm not better than you. Do you know why God extends his grace to us to begin with? Because we're hopelessly sinful. We're hopelessly depraved. That's why to understand his grace, you need to first understand that you are someone in need of his grace. You get that? If we don't consider ourselves lost or dirty, sinful, and unacceptable before the holy God, then we won't have a sense of need for a Savior. We won't have that. Someone to make us right before God. Now, I want you guys to think of that one person that you know in your life who has it all together. 
Like they've got it together. They have a great job. They have a great spouse or a great significant other. They have great kids, perhaps. They drive a great car. They live in a great area. They have a great house. Their life seems pretty darn amazing. And so when we look at them through the lens of, let's say, Facebook, we see greatness. We see almost perfection. We see beauty. And all we see are smiles. And life is so great. They're constantly vacationing to the point where you begin to think, do you even work? Right? But you see it almost covetously, if not enviously. But if you were to monitor their lives, if you were to put a little camera in the corner of every room of their house, when the doors are shut, when the screens are closed, what would you see? Would you see the smiles? Would you see pure bliss? Perhaps at times, but sometimes. But you would actually see what? The reality of two sinners living together. And that is what? Pain. There's struggle. There's arguments. It's not all smiles. And so we compare ourselves to these people. And all it does is it hurts us more. We need to stop trying to be like the way you want the world to see you as. See, Apostle Paul, he was one of the greatest guys who ever lived. He had a great career. He had a great family, great reputation, great following, great influence, great knowledge, great power, great everything. And yet after experiencing God's grace, he began to see himself the way that God saw him, behind closed doors. And what did he see? He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Christ Jesus came into, world, came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. You see, he, at that moment, he realized, man, I don't have a lot going for me, actually. I'm not as great as I thought. That's what we hear in verse 3 of this passage. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Grace changes how we see ourselves. Grace allows us to see ourselves the way God sees us. We're no better than anyone else. Secondly, grace teaches us that we're accountable for ourselves before God. So we've learned uh, not to think more highly of ourselves than we should, but the opposite is true too, in that we shouldn't be passive and wait idly by for God to do something in our lives. Now, what am I saying here? I'm saying you all, as Christians, as those who profess Christ to be your Lord and Savior, you all have been given a responsibility to be faithful with what you've got. You've been given a task, an opportunity. You have been given a responsibility. That means, guess what? Even your difficult circumstances in your life currently, perhaps, are gifts from God because he's allowing you to trust in him and display faith as you trustfully navigate through it. In other words, God's giving you moments, and he's giving you situations, and he's giving you circumstances to display God's goodness and your faith in God's goodness. That's a gift. That's a gift. God's giving you people, opportunities, influence, resources, and time. How are you being faithful to God through those ways? You see, there's a balance that's needed between those two things, being humble about who we truly are and being responsible for yourself and the things that God has placed you in. Now, I want you all to know that as much as you extend grace to others, you need to also extend grace to yourself. Okay? But I want to clarify what that means because we may think it means just pardoning our mistakes. And so we say, oops, I made a mistake. Well, I'm forgiven. I'm a Christian. I'll be okay. Here's the thing. None of us have the power to pardon ourselves. Okay? Why? Because when we sin, we're not the ones being offended. We're not the ones getting offended. When we want to free ourselves from guilt, we tend to say to ourselves, it's okay. 
I'm human. We're all imperfect. No biggie. But it's not okay because it's deeper than just excusing yourself or simply not condemning yourself because you're a Christian. While there's nothing wrong with giving ourselves grace, we need to know there's something that goes before it, and that's first going before God's grace and accepting his forgiveness. Now, one of the greatest theologians and pastor and writer, author, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote this in his book, Cost of Discipleship. He said this, Cheap grace is the grace that we like to bestow on ourselves. I'm, oops, mistake, no biggie, it's all right. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Cheap grace is grace without the cross. Cheap grace is grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. You can't say I'm forgiven and I'm bestowing grace upon myself if you don't first go to the source of your grace, Jesus. He needs to be the one who gives you the grace to grace yourself because his grace is redeeming, his grace is restoring and powerful, but our grace is weak. Our grace is earthly and incapable of creating any change in our lives even for the smallest of sins. You need to first receive the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. You need to humbly approach the throne of God and say, God, you do your change in me right now before I allow myself or pardon myself or extend that grace upon myself. I need you. I need to hear what you have to say before I hear what I have to say. Does that make sense? Our second point is that God calls us to restore those who have fallen. So as bad as we are in extending grace upon ourselves in humility, what's even harder is extending grace to others. We're not very good at extending grace to other people, are we? Right? Now, when we roll past a stop sign, we know we've done something wrong, haven't you? No, you guys think you're perfectly fine? We know you've done something wrong. You know you've done something illegal, but we say to ourselves, and I'll, give my, I'll, I'll use myself an example, as I kind of roll past the stop sign, I'll say, <laughs> and I'll just kind of like casually go past it, and, I say, and I'll say to myself, well, I, I kind of, I slowed down, I kind of stopped, and I don't always do that. David, it was a mistake. David, you're awesome. Let's go get ice cream. You deserve it. I'm so kind to myself. But when you see someone else roll past a stop sign, you think, you are the worst driver ever. You are horrible. Are you blind? How did you even obtain your driver's license? Man, I wish I had a badge so I could ticket you. So I could tickle you. You are terrible. You don't deserve to drive. Driving is a privilege, not a right. Right? And we condemn them. And we say, you are an awful human being, scum of the earth. How dare you do this? You see, when someone falls, someone else falls or has a moral lapse, we tend to make that failure a part of that person's identity, don't we? Huh? We say, he becomes known as that person. And so once you're tagged as that person, We rejoice rather than mourn when they move on and out of our lives. You say, good riddance. I can now wash my hands of you. 
You're out of my life now. Thank the Lord Jesus. We feel justified condemning them because, you know what? Other people also think negatively of that person too. We have no problem benching them in terms of church life. You know what? You just go, you just go ahead and do this. Separate yourself from us because you're deeply unqualified and deeply unfit to serve church and serve the ministry in any capacity because you made a huge mistake. Uh-uh. Big mistake. Uh, I'm going to pull you out now. But Paul, he lays out some instructions in how God wants us to deal with people like this. He wants us to do something completely different with these people who fail, with these people who have fallen. He wants us to plan for their restoration. He wants us to plan for their restoration. Now, we're not a church who will look the other way when there's sin, but like any other church, we often focus on removing the sin rather than restoring the sinner. Does that make sense? And so while church discipline is necessary, it becomes quickly punitive rather than restorative. Now here's the difference though. When we have an unrepentant person who continues to act in a very kind of sinful, divisive, or belligerent way, well that's completely different. There has to be church discipline, if not to the, to the point where you would have to even remove them from ministry. But when we have people who've made a big, big mistake, but they're asking for forgiveness, they're asking for grace. Sometimes even for us, it's hard to still forgive them and let go. Now maybe there's someone in your life who's wronged you. What is God telling us right now? He's saying this, don't condemn them. Don't suspend them from fellowship. Don't cut them off from all responsibilities. Don't wish them for a forever joyless, remorse-filled life. You see, many people have wronged me, but I know that I have wronged many people too. But the closer I get to God, the more I realize that I have no case for myself and I have no case against others. Because the Bible I read says that Jesus paid for my sins, so how in the world could I dare to have someone else pay it back again? My Jesus forgives because my Jesus is in the business of lifting up those who have fallen and he's in the business of filling their hearts with joy and restoration. That's the Jesus we serve. To raise people up. To set them up for success. Spiritual growth, not destruction. You want to talk about restoring responsibilities to terrible people? Look in the Bible. Moses was a murderer. David was a murderer and adulterer. Paul was a blasphemer and a, and a persecutor of the church, and yet God, he did something in them that no one else in the entire world would have ever guessed to do or would want to do. God, he restored them. He gave them another chance. He forgave them, and he poured into them, and yet we have this prideful audacity to say to some of us here or someone out there that they are unworthy to be called a saint, unworthy to serve God, unworthy to be loved. Church discipline, whether it's done formally or informally, guess what? It's only intended to bring someone to admit and abandon their sin. But if and when they confess and they repent, they are forgiven. And yet, why do we still hold it against them? Yet, why do we still say, this is who you are. You're that person. There's no guilt that they need to work off. There should be no punishment that they have to continue to work at and endure. When they repent and they realize the sins they've committed, do you know what happens at that moment of repentance? 
Do you know at, at that moment when they made that big moral failure, that big sin in their life, that thing that disrupted ministry, that disrupted your life group, that made mess in your relationship, whatever it is, but at the moment they said, I have sinned and I messed up, God, would you forgive me? And they repented. Do you know what happens? You know what shouldn't happen? What shouldn't happen is this, us saying, you know what, I'm never gonna, I can't trust you ever again. Leave my life group, leave my church, leave my life, get out. No, no, no. It should ne- this, should, this should never happen. We often do it. We say, don't you ever talk to me again. Don't you ever do that to me again. But do you know what happens when they actually genuinely repent? I'll tell you. In the heavens, the angels rejoice. When one person who sinned and repents, the angels rejoice because the loss has been found. The loss has been found. The loss has been reclaimed. That lost person who was just going so off track, they've been restored. That person who had just totally, that everyone else had given up on, but God didn't. That person has been forgiven and reclaimed. You see, that's what God's grace does. It restores us. And that's the same type of grace that every single person here needs to extend to every single person here. Amen? But not only that, the power of restoration has to be done by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't think you can change people. Turn to your neighbor and say, I can't change you. Too many women. That's how I'm starting off this. (laughs) Too many women (laughs) enter into relationships with these guys thinking they'll change. Hmm. Meanwhile, guys enter into relationship with girls, praying to God, please don't change. Look, we can influence people all we want, positively, negatively, through counseling, peer pressure, shaming, public humiliation, even using persuasive skills, whatever it is that you want or can do. But the one thing that you can, go, that you can never go near is their heart. You can't touch it. You can't go near it. Oh, you can go ahead and say, I don't like your hairstyle, but it's time to make that change. You can go ahead and say, you know what? You got a little belly going on, husband. You need to go back to gym. I'm saying all these things that my wife is saying to me right now, right? All these things. But the one thing that you can't go near and one thing that you can't change in anyone's life is their heart. It has to be done by the work of the Holy Spirit. Note the first verse where it says, you who are spiritual. This is referring to the believer, who demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, the one who's controlled by the Spirit of God. In verse 1 where it says, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's not describing the mood that we should have. This is the Hebrew word of saying the gentle spirit. To those who have fallen and need change, it must be done by the work of the Holy Spirit. But why? Because we're not asking to be restored to the world. We're being restored back to God, which means if, if, if it was God we offended, if it was our fellowship with God that we fractured, then like King David when confronted with his sin by prophet Nathan, it wasn't, I sinned against Bathsheba. I committed adultery. It wasn't, I murdered and I sinned against Uriah. Or it wasn't, I was an inadequate and I, and I was a failed king leading the people of Israel. It wasn't none of that. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. He, he didn't say, I offended Uriah, Bathsheba, the people of Israel. He's saying, I offended God. I sinned against God. Our sins offend God. Therefore, we need to be restored back to 
God. And the only way for us to get back to God must be done with the power of God. In other words, restoration can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. You want to get back with God? You want the person in your life to get back with God? Then you know what? Stop talking and pray more. Less nagging. Less just forcing them to do things. Read the Bible. and Less force feeding. Instead, more on your knees, seeking God and praying. Praying that the Holy Spirit will move in that person's life. Is there someone in your life who needs to change? There probably are. But know this. You want more than external behavioral change. That kind of change can be done with any self-help book of 10 steps to becoming a better you. No. The sins we deal with, the problems we face is never just a bad habit. It's a heart issue. The things that plague the person in your life or even you, it's not just an external, outside, superficial problem of a bad habit, of a bad attitude. You see, it's a heart issue. It's a spiritual issue, and no band-aid of positive thinking or whatever will ever hear it. Heal it. You must seek the surgeon, the Holy Spirit, and ask him to heal, to fix, to change, and restore. Whether it's your spouse, your children, your roommate, your sibling, your parent, or anyone in your life, they're not just carrying a bad attitude. They're carrying a dead heart or a broken heart. They're carrying either a dead heart or a broken heart. One needs the Spirit of God to change it to a heart of life, and the other still needs the Holy Spirit to restore it back to health. Either way, it's God's work. Regardless, you must call upon the Holy Spirit to do His work in you and in others. Lastly, the work of restoration also involves bearing their burden. It says in verse 5, For each will have to bear his own load. Now, this is a weird verse. We're called to let the Holy Spirit to do the work, right? We can't make change. Holy Spirit does the change. And yet from verse 2 and 5, we're told to bear each other's burden and bear our own. What does that even mean? I want you guys to think about it, for, think about it in terms of a church body perspective <clears throat> or body perspective. What happens when you have a hangnail? It ruins your entire day, doesn't it? Or am I just being a drama queen right now? It ruins my entire day. I quit ministry that day. I stop everything. I stop being a father or husband, and I just stare at my finger. And I think, man, could life get any worse than this? It ruins everything. This, this painful, tiny little piece of skin, it causes so much pain. How about this? What about for those, those of you who've had migraines or a headache? It ruins everything. You become immobile. It's completely debilitating. You can't think. You can't talk. You can't function. And it's only right here. And it's only right here. You see, when one part of the body of Christ hurts, the whole body hurts. The whole body feels the burden of the broken and the fallen. And that's what God is telling us today. He hasn't given us grace just for our sake. God has given us grace for the sake of the entire body. So the entire body will function. He has given us grace not just to extend and receive upon for ourselves, but to extend to one another so that we can keep going and keep working and keep striving and keep persevering. You know, one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther of the Reformation is his commentary lecture on uh, Galatians. I want to read a few lines. He said this, If there is anything in us it is not for our own. It is a gift of God. 
But if it is a gift of God, then I must serve others with it, not just myself. Thus, my learning is not my own. It belongs to the unlearned and is the debt I owe them. My chastity is not my own. It belongs to those who commit sins of the flesh, and I am obligated to serve them through it. Thus, my wisdom belongs to the foolish, my power to the oppressed. Thus, my wealth belongs to the poor, my righteousness to the sinners. It is with all these qualities that we must stand before God and intervene on behalf of those who do not have them as though clothed with someone else's garment for This is what Christ did for me. Did you hear that? People of God, we're called not only to pick up and bear our own burdens, but to pick up and bear the burdens of our broken and fallen brothers and sisters in Christ. God's grace calls us to change how we see ourselves, but his grace also calls us to restore those who have messed up. To those who have done things to you, to us. And maybe in your eyes, maybe in the eyes of the world, it's unforgivable, but you know what? In the eyes of God, it is forgivable. And it can only be forgiven by His grace. We, need, we all need to understand that regardless of how someone felt, maybe, maybe they made just a bad decision. Maybe it was carelessness. Maybe it was just straight up stupidity and foolishness. We have to ultimately know and understand that ultimately, They have fallen because of the enemy they fought. We all have one enemy, and it's not each other. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're not my enemy. What's your enemy? It's sin. Satan's your enemy. His tactic, his temptations, his ploy to divide and destroy us. Every Christian, hear me out, I'm going to end with this. Every Christian is in the army of God. You know that? Every Christian is in the army of God, and we're all in battle against the dark forces. It's shocking to see churches that are more concerned about condemning and distancing themselves from the wounded soldier of Christ than wanting to heal them and restore them back to the body. I pray that today begins a new outlook in the way that we understand grace, but more importantly, the way that we practice grace. If we see how much we need God's grace every day, it should naturally lead to a restorative understanding of how we should extend that same grace to others. Turn to your neighbor and say this. May the Lord's grace be upon you. Let's pray. Lord, how foolish it is for us to think That, that somehow there are people in our lives who are undeserving of grace. And yet, what do we do, Lord? Every day we sin against you, and yet every day you give us another day to live, to breathe, to walk, to talk, to hear, listen, to love, to embrace, to do the things that, that we enjoy doing. Chance after chance, day after day, moment by moment, God, you, those are all things that you've given us. And they aren't things that we deserve. No, Lord, it's your grace. There's no guarantee. There's no promise of a tomorrow. There's no promise of the next hour. We know that life is fleeting. We know that things just fall. 
and yet you still lavish us with your grace. You pour out into us, and yet for some reason we withhold love and compassion, forgiveness to those who desperately need it. Help us to understand, God, that when we sin, it's, not, it's, not, it's never just against that one person or that person against us. No, Lord, like David cried out, we sinned against you, Lord. Therefore, when we repent, we want to get right back with you. We want to get restored back to you. And we ask that you pardon us. Father, give us that same strength and clarity and love to do that for others. Brothers and sisters, I want to give you guys just a moment as we go into our last song. Perhaps there's a person, perhaps it's even yourself, but whoever it might be, would you pray to the Lord that he would empower you with the Spirit of God, with the Holy Spirit of God, to love and embrace that person, as difficult as it might be, to forgive them. to extend your grace, the grace that God has given you to that individual. And if it's difficult, take this time to reflect upon your relationship with God and how much God has just bestowed grace upon you. See how grace allows you to really see yourself. So let's take this time, pray, and then we'll go into our last song.